Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. So there's a couple lying in bed. Doorbell rings. The husband gets up, answers the door, and it's this guy, and he says, Hey, man, can you help me out? Can you give me a push? And the guy says, It's 3 in the morning. Can't help you. Goes back to bed, and his wife says, You should have helped him. So he yells out into the night, Hey, man, are you still out there? Yeah. He said, Where are you? And he said, I'm over here on the swing. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from comic Tig Notaro that'll break the ice. Mm. We'll speak with her later about her show on Amazon. Plus, late show band leader John Batiste makes us hungry for red beans and rice. Also coming up, genius filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos tells us why he likes making audiences uneasy, and we learn what real Americans eat. But first, small talk. <laughs> All week long, you've been hearing these stories. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort has been indicted. The Houston Astros defeated the Los Angeles Dodgers last night to win the World Series. The president calling on Congress to scrap the immigration program that allowed the suspect in the New York City attack into the country in the first place. Now for something you might not have heard. We are joined by writer Gustavo Ariano. He's been on the show many times, and he's got a piece coming out in the next issue of Reason magazine. Gustavo, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I want to talk about... Some story coming out of Austria where they're putting airbags around light poles in Salzburg, Austria, because too many people are apparently walking into light poles while checking their cell phones. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. But I I have to say, though, I'm I'm actually it's exciting for me to hear that that people are walking because in New York, people stop on their cell phones. And that's what drives me crazy. (laughs) Oh, they just stop in the middle of the sidewalk and you bump into them. Absolutely. They become the airbags because you walk directly into them. (laughs) Um, So is this is this a real thing or is this some sort of awareness campaign? No, as far as I could tell in Salzburg, that's what they're doing. I personally think they shouldn't put airbags. They should put spikes because anyone who (laughs) runs into a light pole. They deserve to get spiked. But of course, that's illegal. So how about we find a happy medium and we just back, you know, back when I was going to high school, uh, our, our principal would put really nasty smelling grease on fences so we couldn't jump them. Or if we did, like we'd smell like really, really bad. So just put grease yeah. on those light poles instead of uh, airbags. By the way, the, we had a story on this show somebody brought in a few months back where in some country they were putting stoplights in the ground at intersections so people wouldn't, <laughs> while reading their cell phones, walk into the middle of an intersection. At what point is the urban environment going to just look like a pinball game? It, it, yeah. It's going to look like Twister mixed with uh, Angry Birds mixed with the apocalypse. It's going to be a wonderful future. <laughs> We're going to kill lots of birds with one stone. Gustavo Ariano, thank you so much for the small talk. Always a pleasure to have you. Take care, guys. All right, and now this party needs some music. That's right. This is what we call our dinner party soundtrack, in which a great musician plays DJ and where turntable meets dinner table. And here to spin some tunes today is New Orleans-raised musician John Batiste. Back in the early oddies, with some fellow graduates of Juilliard, he formed the acclaimed group Stay Human, which he now leads as the house band on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Here's John with a playlist that will make you want to revisit some classics. My name is John Batiste. And I'm ready and willing and able to put food on the table. Yes, indeed. I want to start the evening 
by putting on Billie Holiday. I cover the waterfront. It's just the right way to set the vibe before everybody even comes into the room. She sings one note and the timbre of her voice, it just cuts through. And I cover the waterfront of the song from that era and it has so much of that optimistic, nostalgic feel to it. A lot of people covered it. Something about the melody, that's the feel I want to create at the top. Here am I, patiently waiting, hoping and longing, oh how I am. Me being born in Kenner, Louisiana, raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. Shout out to Bunch Village. Shout out to Chateau Estates. Shout out to Lincoln Manor. I would make red beans and rice. I've had different iterations, but I got to say the red beans and rice recipe in New Orleans, that to me is just one of my favorite things on the planet Earth. And then I would also have um, a big bowl of kale salad with amazing toppings like raisins and, and walnuts and not too much dressing. Right as the main course hits the table, Hey Joe comes on. The, the, the clank of the plate on the table, it hits the table and it's like that's the needle drop. Ooh, that chord progression. Hey, Joe, where you going that gun in your hand? It's one of those things about lyrics that it's hard to put your finger on. It's almost an intangible quality in lyrics. Like when you start a song talking about a person, Papa was a rolling stone, or like, Mama said there'd be days like this, or like, Hey, Joe, where you going with that gun in your hand? Like, it's very colloquial, and it has a depth that I think subliminally it affects how you receive the rest of the message in the song. The way that Jimmy sings... And again, the way that uh, Billy's, the, the timbre of her voice, those voices are like instruments. Like her voice almost sounds like a violin or a saxophone. And his voice sounds like people in a room talking. They have this dual quality to their voice where it can sit in a room and create an atmosphere as an instrument, but it also can be the main focus. can't pick songs that people dance to at a dinner party because then they want to get up and dance. But it has that push to it that I like. And then, for dessert, Brad Meldow playing Blackbird. It's wistful. It bounces. It has a buoyancy. And 
I really like what he does with that. It's very sweet, and it's it's a great compliment, I think, to um, a sweet dish, dolce, like if you had um, a lemon tart. Brad has a feeling of deep introspection in everything that he does. He seems as though he spent a lot of time alone with the piano. I like to think about this thing that Thelonious Monk said, and he says, the genius is the one who is most like himself. into the idea of unexpected surprises. At the end of dinner, just when you think it's over, you look up and coming through the door is a marching band. <laughs> I love that. I like <laughs> you know, you, you, you um doesn't have to be something as 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 crazy as that. Maybe somebody at the table pulls out a violin or a cello and they play the Bach cello suites. Just something like that. It's the encore. Some sort of communal participation which breaks whatever ice hasn't been broken yet. And now everybody is linked in a way that there's no turning back at this point. We're in the room together. We can't ignore it anymore, even if we were trying. So now the record plays. So um, Express Yourself would kind of start the dance party. Pick up your pain, brush your pain, express yourself in pain. I'm inviting everybody to dance as that's happening. And I, I don't even really have to invite them because at that point, if I've done my job, we're already just like in a vibe. Oh, shucks, shoulders shaking, foot moving, grooving, you know. A dinner party soundtrack from John Baptiste. You can see him and his band Stay Human every weeknight on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And you're listening to them right now. And while we're on the subject of great music, you can join us to hear some live. On November 16th in Seattle, we will be taping an episode of our show featuring local guitar hero Kyle Kraft, plus other guests like New York Times columnist Lindy West, and of course, cocktails. It's all at the historic Moore Theater. More info at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we're going to take a break, but in a minute, comic and actor Tig Notaro tells us why her Amazon series One Mississippi probably shocked her ex mm. when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Yorgos Lanthimos, the man behind last year's Oscar-nominated indie hit The Lobster, tells us what's at the heart of his latest thriller. And in a minute, Darcy Carden of TV's The Good Place tells us about the worst temp gig ever. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and that would be Tig Notaro. 
In yeah. 2012, after years as a respected stand-up comedian, she made a huge impact with the set at the comedy club Largo, in which she announced she had breast cancer. She'd only been diagnosed that week. The recording of that set was a giant hit. It led to a documentary about her and ultimately to her semi-autobiographical Amazon comedy series called One Mississippi. In it, she plays an L.A. radio host who returns to her small Mississippi hometown. Tig says the character is basically her, placed in fictional situations. So I asked why she named the character Tig Bavaro. Well, (laughs) Tig Bavaro was a joke in the writer's room. Because we were talking about what my name should be, and I made the joke about Bavaro because my first girlfriend's family name is Bavaro, <laughs> and so that just came out of my mouth, and then everyone was like, ah, ha, 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 and I never thought about it again, and then when we were shooting the first season, there's a scene where I pull up with this girl, Jessie, that I'm out on a date with, mm-hmm. and all my belongings had been dropped off by Casey Wilson's character, and I see on all the boxes it says Tig Bavaro. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I never changed that in yeah. the writer's room. Yeah. And so my ex, who I don't <laughs> I really ever ask. talk to, <laughs> I now have her last name on the TV show. She's like, you never got over me, did yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there's something that I love about the show and that I love about your comedy, but it's not an easy thing about either of them, is the, is the pace of it. I mean, if it wasn't for the subject matter, which is often very edgy, I would describe the show as just very mellow mm. and pleasant. <laughs> you're you're taking your time. Nobody seems to be in a rush, which is totally the opposite of most comedy, which is just hitting you as quickly as possible with right. as many jokes. You know, we live in the post-Simpsons world where it's just cramming as many jokes as you can. Yeah. Where did that come from? The Simpsons? No. <laughs> your, your, I don't know. I, I, it's nothing that I worked on as like, well, I, I think I'm going to have a slow delivery. It, I've tried to speed things up and it feels weird. Mm. But oddly, I did. The singer Sia has a movie that she's written and directed and really? I have a part in it. And she gave me a note to take it down a notch. <laughs> to to slow down? Yeah. And I was like, wait, are you kidding me? <laughs> and she said, no, seriously, like, really, pull it back. And Is the movie five hours long? <laughs> well, I'm not the star of it. But okay. I was like, you understand I've never gotten this note in my life. <laughs> and is... she said, I know, but like, really, half the time. <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier the edgy subject matter of the show. Mm-hmm. One of the major themes that's brought up often in this season is uh, sexual molestation. Uh-huh. And my understanding is that you've got a writer's room of all women, yeah. many if not all of whom have experienced this before. Yeah, I mean, p- when people hear molestation, they think, you know, a family member touched you when you were small. But there's different topics we go into from molestation to assault and harassment. and Sexual assault, let's say. Sure. What is what is the writer's room like when you're talking about these things? I mean, I can't. It, it seems like a the most unusual job. You come in and you you know mine the most painful moments of your life with a bunch of people publicly. Yeah, this writer's room. You have to be willing to walk in and be one hundred percent open. Give it all, and if you're withholding in some way, it's just really not helping. Mm-hmm. We have six female writers and we have one female writer's assistant and all seven of us have had some experience and 
we shared it all. There was definitely a lot of emotional moments in the room. Have you had somebody who's been on the staff and they realize what they've gotten into and they're like, can't do it? Most people in the room I know or Kate Robin knows who is the showrunner. So somebody didn't come in blindly like, whoa, whoa, uh, whoa. <laughs> Wait a <laughs> second. Know, yeah. Well, you know, with the first season, um, my hometown was so excited that I got in a show and they were talking about it in the local paper and... My cousin had chimed in to the local paper saying that it was going to be Tig's version of Everybody Loves Raymond. And I, I think people tuned in and were like, ah, what is this? Oh, boy. <laughs> this, isn't, this is, this not. is what we expected. Yes, this is not. Actually, to that point, uh, I want to play a clip from the second episode of this season, which is one of the funniest scenes that I've seen maybe this year, mm-hmm. but which maybe doesn't portray your homeland of the South in the best of lights. Um, this is when you and a friend have gone to a hospital to see your stepfather, mm-hmm. your character's stepfather, who's uh, fallen ill, and they're not allowed in because your character is gay. Mm-hmm. Let's hear this. I'm asking y'all to leave. <laughs> oh my God. Is this because I'm gay? Yes, it most certainly is. How do you know I'm gay? You sure shove it in my face. I'm not gay. Well, you know what? I'm not gay either. You already said you were. Yeah, well, I was gay and now I'm not. Excuse me? I'm straight now. I just chose to be straight right now while I was talking to you. I, uh, it's a choice, right? So I'm no longer lesbo town. I love men and I can't wait to kiss a big, hairy, bearded man. Now may I have my stepfather's room, please? I am not stupid. Well, I disagree. (laughs) (laughs) An amazing scene. But again, coming from a place of of real pain. Tell me about the genesis of that scene. Where does it come from? Well, Stephanie, my wife and I, we go to Mississippi a lot. And for my father's memorial, we were getting a hotel room outside of any sort of major city in this little tiny area, town. And when we were checking in, we were really having that realization that mm. we had no rights and we could be kicked out of our hotel room mm. and there would be n- no place to go. We, it's not like you could go to the police and complain about this. You really are unsafe. And I also thought about how interesting it is once you are gay or realize that you are and you've acted on it and you've come out. Or maybe you haven't even come out and people have heard that you are. I I used to think about that all the time. It's like, oh, people know I'm gay. Somehow nobody saw it happen, but they they know. They know I'm gay. Word is out. (laughs) There are whispers. And then it's like, I could just go, oh, I'm not gay right now. Like, (laughs) right this minute, I'm just decided not to do it. It amuses me that halfway through a conversation, I could be like, you know what? I'm not gay anymore. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) How do you write a scene like that, though, or any of these scenes that we're talking about? Because there's still that underlying feeling of mellowness and kind of charming humor, even in these most painful scenes. What's the trick? Each time you put it out there and you're like, I don't know. I hope it's okay. I I certainly don't know what the, the secret is to it, aside from... There have been so many people raking through these episodes, these scripts and outlines and, 
Uh, even down to when I'm on set saying lines that I've written, when I'm in the moment, I might find that this doesn't feel right. Hmm. This might make it funnier or poignant or something. Uh, uh, but the the goal isn't always to make it funny. Absolutely not. I mean, before, I've never been a comedian that's been out in Hollywood pitching my own show. And I always thought, well, maybe if I did something, I'd be on a drama because it, I felt like it spoke to me a little more. I like the heart and soul, and I'm so drawn to dramatic movies and shows more so than comedic. I mean, it's maybe stereotypical to say, but there is the idea of the comedian as, as the sad clown that you're all Pagliacci underneath. I guess. I feel like comedians get that, but it's or even artists, but I, I always think that it's because we're on display or we have a microphone. I think your mailman probably is sad as well. I, I imagine you probably have family members that are. And oh, they're, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, everyone's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm an yeah. Italian Jew. We're all super happy. <laughs> yeah, but I do. I think it's. I think it's just humans. Tig Nataro, the second season of her series One Mississippi, is streaming on Amazon right now. And by the way, Tig also expounded at length about what she claims to be the greatest vegan meatball sandwich ever. You heard correctly. Mm. We'll be putting that audio in an upcoming podcast-only episode. To hear it, subscribe to the Dinner Party Download wherever you get your podcasts. Time to eavesdrop. Actor and improv comedian Darcy Carden plays someone with all of the answers, literally, in the hit NBC comedy The Good Place. Her character Janet is a Siri-like robot who appears whenever anyone needs anything. Today we overhear Darcy tell a tale about a time in her life when she had a little less figured out. So like many struggling actors in New York City, I was a temp. Most of the struggling actors I knew that Tempt hated this job, but for some reason, I didn't. Maybe I liked it because I knew these jobs wouldn't last long. I was often a receptionist or a secretary. I was the receptionist at a law firm where all the lawyers were men, and I worked there for about a week, and every single day one of them would ask me out, which is probably why they cycled through receptionists so quickly. I worked as the receptionist at a trend-spotting company, whatever that means. I sat in what I can only describe as a giant plastic egg. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I had to sort of, like, crouch down to get into it because there was a little hole in the back. And I just sat in an egg and answered the phone. We could only wear black, and every day the woman who owned the company would come in and have me stand up and turn around and then sit back down just to make sure that I... I guess, looked okay for her. So those were all examples of things that I knew I didn't want to do, but one day I got a call about something that sounded pretty great. My special temp agent, who always gave me the best jobs, called me one morning to say that she got me a job at Mark Jacobs. It was going to be a simple job. I was just going to be in the corner wrapping presents because it was the holidays. The best part of this was that I was going to get to wear, like, a special Marc Jacobs outfit. So I was very excited because I didn't know what this job was going to lead to. I mean, I knew that I wanted to be an actor. Maybe Marc Jacobs would see me wrapping presents in the corner of his store, and he'd want to get to know me, and 
After a while, I would tell him, I'm actually an actress. And he would introduce me to Gwyneth Paltrow, and she would put me in the next movie she was doing. And who knows? That's the thing. As an actor, you just have to walk through the door that's open. And this was my door. So I woke up that morning with a little extra pep in my step. I wore black from head to toe because that was very New York and very cool. I was walking down the street on a perfect wintry day in the perfect gorgeous West Village. There was a beautiful park across the street where people were sipping lattes and eating croissants. And I see the Marc Jacobs sign with that kind of iconic Marc Jacobs font. And my heart starts to race. Through the window, I see these four girls dressed as elves in red and green costumes. And all of a sudden, it hits me. I am going to be an elf. Sort of like out of a movie, I like slammed my back up against a wall so that they wouldn't see me. And I had to kind of think it over. Darcy, they haven't seen you yet. Make the decision. You can just leave right now. But the truth of the matter is that I was a poor, struggling actor, and I needed that money bad. So I took a deep breath, and I walked through the door of the Marc Jacobs, and they handed me a plastic bag, one of those little plastic bags that you would find at, like, a Halloween superstore. Not only was it not a Marc Jacobs outfit, it wasn't even, like, a Marc Jacobs elf costume. It was, like, a $10, $12 felt potato sack and these poor little felt curly shoes. And I looked in the mirror, and... I said, you can do this, Darcy. And we stood in the front, and we wrapped these beautiful Marc Jacobs gifts and gave these rich women their holiday presents. Not only was it humiliating, but the people that actually worked at Marc Jacobs hated us. They hated us. They wouldn't give us the time of day. If we had to use the bathroom, it was such a problem for them. They were used to, like, these high-fashion, supermodel, amazing downtown New York people coming in there. And all of a sudden, they had these five dorky temps. I think we just kind of took the whole vibe down. You can kind of find the joy in anything or the positivity in anything or, like, the glass half full. But this really wasn't that. This was, like, five girls who were ashamed and who were not where they wanted to be. And we all felt so bad for each other that even though there was always supposed to be five elves, we would let people go early or or even give them the day off without telling the temp agencies. Like, you don't have to suffer through this tomorrow. Elves got to look out for each other. The one silver lining is that this was my last temp job. It was the straw that broke my back and I couldn't do another day of it. And after this, I started my real career which was waitressing for many years. Hmm. Darcy Carden, you can catch her on the NBC comedy The Good Place, and you're listening, hopefully not through fake pointy ears, to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Enrico, today I want to talk about true American food. All right. Frosted flakes, uh, hot dogs, and Charleston chews. 
Charleston chews. Yes. Interesting. It's a uh-huh. staple. Nope. I mean, true Native American food. Ah. There's a new book. It's called The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, and it focuses on food and recipes native to America before Europeans arrived. So Frosted Flakes not in there. Well, not get a recipe. they have corn, but yeah, no, okay. they're not. Uh, the chef behind the book is Sean Sherman. He grew up on a reservation in South Dakota. And I met with him as he was preparing a dinner for the James Beard Foundation. I asked him if a twist on the stereotypical Native American food, fry bread, would be part of the menu. Personally, I grew up with fry bread. We had it at a lot of events. Um, but as a chef and as the, doing the research that I'm doing now, fry bread is not a good representation of indigenous foods. And, you know, the biggest reason is it comes from the commodity food program and the treaties of the government supplying foods for the indigenous people, which was intentional for them to keep them off of their traditional food ways so they wouldn't have to hunt or need hunting lands or harvesting the wild foods out there. So by food ways, you mean the government took over their land where they used to get their food, and then they're like, here, here's the booby prize. We're going to give you these commodities and it's not very healthy. Yep, you can look up the 2017 commodity food list for tribal reservations and see. It's, it looks like what we get at school food programs. It looks like what we see in hospitals. And the problem with that commodity food program is that it's created a lot of diabetes, a lot of obesity. And the USDA will tell you that this is not a nutritional program. It's designed to be part of this farm supplement programs. But the problem is it's being processed by the lowest bidder into really unhealthy forms with high sodium, lots of starch, um, lots of bad sugars and fats. Fry bread just uh, is kind of the epitome of everything that's bad for you. You grew up on a reservation. Yeah. Yes, Pine Ridge Reservation. And uh, then you started cooking, and then you cooked in Minneapolis, and you cooked at some white tablecloth restaurants and did the whole thing. You took a break, and that's when you started to reflect a little bit on Native American cuisine. What sprang from that? Yeah, for me, um, I just always worked restaurants growing up. Um, It was out of necessity when I was younger just because we were poor. And a few years into my chef career, I had that epiphany um, after studying and learning in detail so many other cultures and really getting a sense um, through self-education, like how those things were done. Because I didn't go to culinary school, so I was teaching myself. By that, you mean like learning about Italian food and French food, and then you're like, hey, what about... Native American food. Exactly. So, you know, researching all these different cultures and just soaking them all up. And then all of a sudden I just had that epiphany. And it was when I was living in Mexico and I was researching some of the indigenous groups down there. And it just struck me that I should have been spending a lot more time researching my own food because I realized all of a sudden, like, I didn't really know anything. Well, we're in a kitchen right now and I want you and it looks like some of these items are laid out and I want you to tell me about them. But right before we do that, though... I think it might also be easier to talk about what's not in this pantry. So what items aren't on your menus? Well, the bigger ones that people can identify that we removed are the dairy, the wheat flour, the processed sugar, the beef, the pork, the chicken. Um, so, you know, just understanding indigenous food systems, you know, we research where do people get salts, where do people, what kind of fats were people using. So we're lucky to have pieces like these ones. Here. Yeah, so let's look at what we have laid out here. This is a beautiful orange squash. Is it a squash? Yep, so this is called a Buffalo Creek squash, and this is probably like a 25-pound squash. And there's some really cool varietals, and this is just one example. And we have these, which are um, white corns, and these are... Yeah, they look like, um, they don't look like your classic corn kernel. There's less kernels on the cob. They're, are they dried? Yep, these are dried, and you can always tell the native stocks because the indigenous corn varieties have much less rows. You know, you look at the GMO crops and the Monsanto crops, and they have, like, up to 26 rows of corn or something insane. And, and These look more like British teeth than uh, corn. <laughs> 
They're yellow and there's dark between the spaces. I'm not going there, but <laughs> I can. I'm, I I represent the English tribe here. Right. <laughs> and now we're moving over to the protein here. So I know this is not beef. We've got um, elk. So elk used to flourish here, but it became extinct in the East Coast, probably in the late 1800s. And what are you marinating this uh, elk in? Um, so we have some rose hips, just some of the stuff that we have. So we have maple, we have rose hips, we've got some of the sunflower seeds, we've got some of the dried corn. We're going to actually put some cedar boughs in there too. And we're going to slow stew this um, for a long time. So it's going to cook for probably 18 hours at a really low temperature. Hey, Beth, did you bring the cedar boughs? Awesome. So you can look at them. All right. Hello. Can you tell us your name? And sure. I'm Beth Dooley, and I work with Sean. I'm a writer. I worked with Sean on the cookbook. All right. Excellent. Well, that's what we're talking about here. It's a beautiful book. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thanks. So where did these come from? Um, should I tell him? <laughs> oh, are you, <laughs> Whole Foods. It's okay. Uh-huh. They did. <laughs> All right. Cool. <laughs> just rinse this stuff off. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, here you go. We were just at the Culinary Institute of Arts um, in Hyde Park, and uh, we did a lot of foraging around the river valley there. Um, there's a lot of obviously beautiful, fresh um, plants out there, yeah, so yeah. There's a lot of, there was a lot of cool stuff to grab, and Beth just came from there. Can you it smells amazing. So you brought the cedar for the elk stew, but also you brought some other bounty. Can you tell us what you have? I, I found this beautiful Maine seaweed, and some of it comes from um, Massachusetts along the coast and from New Hampshire. So we have dulse, we have dulse flakes, we have nori, and then we have larger dulse, and these are the pumpkin seeds. All right. Does the tail wag the dog here sometimes in that you find a group of ingredients that you like, and then you're like, all right, I'll work backwards to figure out a menu? We're just really interested in all the cool flavors that are around. So since we're on the East Coast and we're doing this dinner at the James Beard House where we're featuring the indigenous flavors of Manhattan, we were really just trying to find foods of around here. So not only the wild foods that are all over and the ocean foods and um, also the, you know, looking for some of these seeds that have been in these regions for thousands of years too. So no hot dogs though for the Manhattan? No hot dogs, no hot dog water. <laughs> Sean Sherman, his book is called The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen. That's Sioux spelled S-I-O-U-X. Nice. All right, coming up, Yorgos Lanthimos, the director behind a series of smart, critically acclaimed movies, talks about the art of making people queasy. And the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post answer your etiquette questions. About things which sometimes make people queasy. Indeed they do, when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, director Yorgos Lanthimos talks about his new film starring Colin Farrell, Nicole Kidman, and a whole lot of creepy music and very uncomfortable situations. That sounds like a dream I had last night. I'm sorry. Uh, but first, speaking of other uncomfortable situations, it's time to learn how to resolve them via our weekly etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. Sometimes we ask them to wildly unqualified celebrities, but once a month or so, we are joined by two people who have got manners in their very marrow. Lizzie Post and Daniel mm. Post-Senning are the great-great-grandkids of Emily Post. They are also co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 19th edition, and they host the podcast Awesome Etiquette. As some of our listeners know by now, we're going to be airing the final episode of this show later this year. Mm. 
Lizzie and Dan, welcome back for a final go-round. We were doing the math. It's been six years since we first had you on. That's right. Oh, my gosh. I thought it had only been four. No. No, we're all older than that, it turns out. I'm sad to say. Oh, I want to say that we love our our time with you, that this has been a really special thing, both for Dan and me as experts at one brand, talking to a couple hosts at another, and also just personally, we have loved getting to know you your audience, the day that we heard the first email that said, can you save this for the posts? We were so honored. Aww. I feel like we're part of the family. <laughs> you are. You are part of the family. Although I was a little offended when we got that first email asking for the post advice. I'm like, guys, <laughs> what are we? you can't find their address on the internet. <laughs> and maybe, maybe you've already answered the question that we wanted to pose to you, which is what, okay. what is the etiquette around a good goodbye? Partings are so important, and I was just sitting here very much enjoying the nature of this parting because it's personal, it's warm, there's a genuine expression of gratitude for the time spent and the opportunity to get to know each other. All right, with that, let's move on to maybe harder questions to answer. We've got a a final few listener problems that we're going to pose to you. You ready for these? Let's do it. All right, this question comes from Josh in Houston. Josh writes, I just had a disappointing meal at a recently opened restaurant. I can usually brush off a bad meal, but this time I felt compelled to say something. What's the best way to go about this? Should I have said something to the waiter, asked for a manager, asked to speak with the chef, maybe sent an email to the restaurant, or should I have just kept my mouth shut? I'm a fan of speaking up. I mean, the restaurant has an opportunity when you speak up to address the concerns, you know, do a better job. If you don't do that, you risk having that person just say, no, I'm not going back. It was so bad. I'm not going to go back. So in a way, it's a nice thing to do for the restaurant is to give them an opportunity to address the problem. In the long run, yeah. It is, if done well. Yes. I, I would say the the point is to raise the issue, not to embarrass or offend anyone. So do it discreetly. Um, whatever avenue you choose, whether it is the manager or a follow-up email, do, do it in a way that doesn't make a bigger deal of your criticism than the initial problem was. Yeah, you would not want, if it's a really, really busy night, to pull a manager aside when they're trying to deal with a lot of other things and they can't really listen. Hmm. I liked the idea of a follow-up email. I see. So don't right. take to Yelp and just say, these guys suck. Bingo. Bingo, bingo, <laughs> Give them a bingo. shot first. Social media revenge. <laughs> All right, here's something from Molly in Brooklyn, New York. Molly writes, how do you respectfully decline eating gefilte fish at your Jewish friend's family's dinner party when everyone else is chowing down? And as a Jew who doesn't like gefilte fish, I feel your pain, Molly. <laughs> <laughs> My vote here is if you, if you can handle it, if it's not like an allergy or a immediately make you sick kind of problem, then I think that you can take what we call the no thank you portion, which is a very, very (laughs) small portion. And you try it just in case, particularly this gefilte fish is the best that you could have ever encountered and and just change Mm. the game on gefilte fish for you. You take that one bite, but the rest of it is a no thank you. I like that hint of optimism, though, too, in your recommendation. It's not just 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 take a bite to be polite. It's like, hey, this might be the one that flips you. (laughs) Brussels sprouts surprised me one day. There, go figure. There you go, go, Molly. Um, Our next question comes from Stephanie via our website. Stephanie writes, I am the only acquisitions editor for an indie press. I receive about 80 new book proposals per day from agents and authors. Our submissions policy says we'll respond only if we're interested. Hmm. Not a day goes by that I don't receive multiple, quote, follow-ups and, quote, requests for updates and even one death threat via the company's Facebook page. Wow. Oh my God. The, the high stakes of indie press publications. Yeah. Sometimes these are from agents with whom I work on other books, 
how do I more clearly get across the message that you're only going to be contacted if I want to move forward? Wow. This is such a classic problem in today's business world where email lists get out and get shared and people are bombarded with solicitations and the the degree of politeness to show and how you respond. But there's also just the reality that in today's world, it's not always possible or even advisable to respond. It's kind of like when a job interview happens and you hear the we'll only call you if you get a second interview thing. And as long Mm -hmm. as that's been put out there, I think that you've done your due diligence and you're not obligated to respond. And that's Mm. just going to be the nature of this type of relationship. But Lizzie, since you brought up the job search thing, what do you do if, for instance, you legitimately wonder if you're you know, job application just fell through the cracks, wasn't seen. But do you really legitimately think you're, it's the modern era. Your email didn't fall behind the desk. (laughs) Happens to us all the time, Brendan. Our (laughs) submission form on our website somehow got disconnected from my email address where these things get sent to. Right. And sure enough, we, we missed a whole bunch. I think there were about 14 media requests. If you're not getting anything back, there's got to be some kind of indicator of a receipt that says, you know, like this, came in and it it happened and it's been received, you're good to go. I think what you're both saying is feel free to send a follow-up if you feel like it fell between the cracks. But Stephanie should also feel free to ignore... Yes. Those follow-ups and not feel any guilt because the policy is there. And let's just add on that those follow-ups should be discreet, quick, respectful in tone and really, really in the spirit of this is a check-in just to be sure that my material was received. So what you're saying, a death threat is not polite? What's wrong with you guys? (laughs) I know. That one I was like, whoa, death threat. That's serious. Jeez, be careful out there, Stephanie. All right. Our last question uh, comes from, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Amkari. Amkari writes, my friend invites me to her parties and expects me to attend. But when I invite her to my own parties, she never attends. Mm. This friendship seems kind of one-sided, and her 50th birthday is coming up. I would like to attend, but I'm feeling resentful. So, should I go to her birthday or not go on principle? Oh, my. Mm. Lizzie Post. This is a therapy question, not an (laughs) etiquette question. I don't know. How do you feel about it? Like, that's, I don't know. Doesn't it just seem like it's like she says she would like to attend. So isn't that the end of the story? The only reason you're not going is to sort of strike a blow at your friend who may or may not even acknowledge it. So, like, if you want to go, you should go. Rico, my therapist retired. I will totally talk to you from now on. (laughs) You're welcome. You've got my number. Some (laughs) friendships are asymmetrical, and I think if you want to participate in them, those are the kind of ground rules. But, of course, feel free to make snide remarks. Don't buy her a gift. (laughs) Trash talker. You could loop around (laughs) later and say, I'm having an event. I would so appreciate it if you'd come. For the next one. You can launch guerrilla warfare. You know, (laughs) 50. That's 50 years she's never come to my parties. Dude, poor um, Amkari is getting like the two totally devil angel sides of this right now. Dan's like, have hope that in the future you could guide her to your next party. And Brendan's like. Go party and then sabotage. That's what I'm saying. There you go. That is, that's our, our last piece of advice is go to a party and sabotage it for your friends. Mm-hmm. Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for your years of service to our listeners. And thank you so much for today's etiquette advice. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, they are co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 19th edition, and they are co-hosts of the podcast, Awesome Etiquette. And people, first of all, we will be airing several more new episodes before we bid you a final adieu, so do stay tuned. And also, don't despair, because we've got a new way to give you advice. That's right. It's our forthcoming book, 
called Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. That's correct. It's filled with our very, very strong opinions about party etiquette and just about everything else. It's out December 5th, but you can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. More info at brunchishell.com. Filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos has directed some of the most disturbing and fascinating movies of the past five years, all of them based on surreal concepts. In his Oscar-nominated film The Lobster, single people are given 45 days to find a mate, and if they fail, they are turned into an animal of their choosing. In his latest movie, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, a doctor, played by Colin Farrell, is confronted by the son of a former patient, who tells him each of the doctor's family members will die a slow, mysterious death unless the doctor kills one of them. Mm. The effect on the moviegoer, as you can imagine, is occasional queasiness. When I spoke with Yorgos, I asked him if that was his intention. The uneasiness you're describing, I think it's one of the most interesting conditions and situations to be in when you're watching something or listening to something that you're not really sure if you're supposed to be laughing about something, if it's inappropriate trying to recognize the the limits to how far you can go, if it's something you've never thought of before. I find that quite engaging and that it keeps you alert about things. If I had hair on my chest and belly, how would you attach these? We'd shave the hair off first. How long does it take for the hair to grow back? I don't know. About a month, I suppose. Your son told me that you've got lots of hair under your arms, three times more than I do, and that you've got a very hairy back and a very hairy belly. I probably do have a little more hair than you do because I'm older than you. But soon you'll have more hair too. It's all down to hormones. Can you show me, please? Can you take off your shirt and show me, please? Okay, you do have more hair than I do, but not three times more. What was the first piece of this movie that really came together for you? Was there a character? Was it the scenario? Was there a scene, a piece of music? What was the first thing that gelled? It's really hard to say exactly where, where it started. All I can say is, I guess, that there, there was an interest in creating this strange dynamic between a very young boy being in control of a grown man's life of a grown-up who's educated, successful, seems to have a grasp of his life, has a family, he seems happy. A young boy being able to overturn that and have that kind of power over someone's life was an interesting kind of initial thought. Also, the whole idea about the medical profession and how mm. you know doctors are part of our lives and the ambiguity of these people trying to do the best for us and saving lives, but also, you know, many times things do go wrong and how can you be sure about whether, you know, someone did something wrong or if someone did the best that they could. So it's a quite a complex and ambiguous situation, so we thought that it would be interesting to explore in a kind of justice fable Guild, justice. Revenge. Revenge. What a charming boy. Isn't he? Yes, very. How did his father die? Car crash. Driving home. Smashed into a pole. Killed instantly. 
How long have you known him? Quite some time. He was a patient of mine, years ago. Did you go to the funeral? I did go, yes. Why didn't I go with you? I think I told you about it, but you were busy or something. In this movie, what happens is, with a lot of your movies you do this, you kind of create these rigid scenarios. And in this one, these family members, to reduce it to its essentials, are going to die a slow, painful death unless the patriarch chooses to kill one of them. And then the, the audience watches the character spin out in this environment. What appeals to you about this strategy for crafting a film? It's usually just logic. When, whenever we set out certain parameters that we're interested in in a certain situation or a story or a conflict, then we just start logically from there building the rest of the story or the world or the rules, mm. depending on, on what it is. Uh, and I think it's really part of our everyday lives in society. Like There are certain rules and there's certain ways that you're supposed to behave and certain expectations from human beings and there's always the punishment when you don't follow the the path that you're supposed yeah. to and the punishment can be from you know a literal punishment to guilt like some of it is in our films or you know many other kind of manifestations of being punished for not so one way to look at this film is that it pits Bourgeois civility, scientific rationality, uh, evidenced by the hospital setting, against darker, more ancient forces like vengeance and family and survival. And, you know, one can walk away feeling pessimistic about modernity's chances. Uh, and yet, then the viewer realizes we're watching this bourgeois, cosmopolitan, art house movie. So maybe there is cause for hope. Yeah, I, I don't think it's pessimistic exactly because it exists and... You know, it raises questions and it doesn't condemn anything or anyone or um, tries to impose a certain view of the world. I think what we're trying to do with most of our films is just ask a lot of questions, like expose things and just go, what do you think about that? How does that make you feel? <laughs> you know, how did you feel now? Is that is that weird? Is that uncomfortable? Yorgos Lanthimos, his film, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, is out now. By the way, Rico interviewed actor Colin Farrell about his role in Lanthimos' last movie, The Lobster. Mm -hmm. You'll find that at dinnerpartydownload.org. Please do. And folks, that is the Dinner Party Download for this week. Thanks to senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, intern Emerald Douglas, and engineer Ben Tolliday. And listeners in the Pacific Northwest, be warned. We're taping our last ever party in Seattle on November 16th at the Moore Theater wow. with guests like New York Times columnist Lindy West, musician Kyle Kraft, cocktails, and hopefully you. More information at dinnerpartydownload.org. Hope to see you there. Bon appetit. 